The Inconvenient History of the Democratic Party yes, was the first that one. that was the one I wanted that to has 27, that over 27 that million I views. <laughs> I loved that video. All right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of The Candace Owens Show and one that I am so honored to be hosting because I know a lot of you guys have followed my political journey um, and it was very hard for me in being a black conservative to find a lot of black conservative voices that were strong in the media. Thankfully for me, I stumbled across a Prager University video that was titled The Inconvenient Truth of the Democratic Party. Um, and it really, really sent me down a path of wanting to be on the side of facts and really learning um, the truth about a lot of things that I had gotten wrong, uh, thanks to a public education system, uh, which seeks to miseducate students rather than to educate them. So I am absolutely honored to be hosting Dr. Carol Swain. Uh, Dr. Carol Swain is the former professor of Vanderbilt University, a former tenured professor of Princeton University. Dr. Carol Swain, welcome to The Candace Owen Show. Thank you so much, I'm so excited. Thank you for stopping in. You have a most incredible story, and there are a lot of points in your story that kind of intersect with my personal story, my family's story, rather. So I really want to start with just who you are as a human being, right, where it starts in your youth, uh, because you did not have a very easy upbringing. So can you just start with where you're from and how you were raised? Well, first of all, I want to start with the fact that I was shy most of my life and people look at me today and they think, oh, no, you know, because once I started talking, I never shut up. <laughs> but um, I was born in the rural south in southwestern Virginia. And um, for part of my life, I lived in a two-room shack uh, with, uh, at that time, about nine of my siblings and my mother and stepfather. And the kind of poverty I experienced was nothing like the people today who say they're poor which means maybe they have one car and uh, maybe they don't have a TV in every room, but it's nothing like the kind of poverty where you don't have clothes to wear to school that's suitable for the weather. And I tell the story of one year I um, failed school along with all of my siblings because it snowed heavily that winter and we missed 80 of 180 school days. And so the whole family failed. <laughs> now, what do you mean by that, that you didn't have a coat to wear out the door? Well, mostly it was the snow was deep, and we did not have any boots or snowshoes, and so we stayed home until the snow melted. Wow. And you said a two-room shack, nine brothers no and sisters? No indoor plumbing. And uh, a few years ago, I went back to the house with the reporter, and it was still standing, you know, part of it was still standing. And um, the house had um, not drywall, but cardboard you know, uh, and wallpaper over top of the cardboard. It had a tin roof. And then on the outside, it had something that we used to call tar paper. It looks like brick. And it's something that if you light it, it burns, you know, very, very quickly. It's a great fire starter. That was on the outside of the house. Wow. Wow. And your parents, uh, what was their upbringing? Well, my mother, I mean, she had, I mean, she had a father and mother intact family, um, but she married my father. They divorced when I was so young. I don't remember when they lived together. I had a stepfather, and my mother finished the tenth grade, 
My father had a third grade education, and my stepfather had no education. Wow. Okay, because that's a very important piece of this. So <laughs> I your, know. your mother didn't finish high school, and your or she had a third grade education, or was that your father? No, my mother had a uh, maybe a tenth grade education, but mm-hmm. my mother is very bright. She could have gone to college, mm-hmm. and in fact, uh, in her old age now, she's ninety. She lives with me. Uh, at one point, she told me all about her college and the red car she had, and all of these things that she probably dreamed of having at some point. But in her mind, she had those things. Right. And um, but my father uh, had a third grade education; was always a hard worker. But I was a teen before I got to know him really well. But I did get to know him, and I was able to take him to Washington D.C. to the Smithsonian and. During the time I was on the faculty at Princeton, I took him to New York and to Princeton, and so he got to enjoy some of my success. So your journey to uh, to becoming Dr. Carol Swain, uh, it would imply that you finished high school right away, but you didn't finish high school right away. Is that correct? I didn't. And uh, and the thing about me and my siblings, we all finished, we all dropped out of school after completing the eighth grade. For some reason, we made it to the eighth grade. Everyone dropped out. And for myself, I married at 16, had my first child at 17. And when I got married at 16, I was not pregnant. It was important to me, even then, uh, to be married when I had my child. Interesting. And, you know, maybe it was, you know, it was a different era, but that was important to me. And so I had my first child at 17. Uh, By the time I was 20, I had three small children. And I ended up, um, part of my story I tell sometime is that uh, during that time in my life, I suffered from depression. I'd do suicide gestures, which meant I would um, go through the medicine cabinet. I would take bottles of pills. And, you know, I should have been, I should have died of all of that, except God had a plan for my life, you know, that was bigger than me. There's no way I would have known that I had a future that would include college and who I am today. But I struggled deeply. But after one of those suicide gestures, and I would call them suicide gestures because um, I always made sure I was rescued. And I said, don't don't try that. (laughs) (laughs) It may not always work. You may not get rescued. But uh, I would call it a suicide gesture. That's what the doctors called it. And um, that was a... My physician was an intern, and um, he told me I was intelligent, I was attractive, I could do more with my life, and I had forgotten that when I was in school that I did really well. What do you think, now that you're, you can look at things in the retrospect, which adds so much clarity to a lot of the actions and the feelings that we had, what do you think was actually leading to that? That, that that unhappiness, these suicide gestures, this looking for a way out, what do you think was leading well, to those emotions? This. As a child, I never felt that I fit in, and I didn't feel like I fit in with my family, and uh, I was very, very shy. I would, my mother said I used to hide behind furniture, and I'd peer out, and I can remember being so uh, shy or so afraid that I would literally forget how to speak, and I would want something. I might be hungry. I might want water. I might want something, and I was like frozen, and uh, you heard that expression, cat got your tongue. Uh, it, that's what it was like for me. And it was like, uh, so I, I did not have voice as a child. And I don't know whether it was fear. I don't know what held me back. But I didn't fit in. But I always had a sense of there's something I'm supposed to do. Mm. 
And my mother said I was more serious than any of her other children and that the things that came out of my mouth did not appear to come from a child. And I always had a sense that my mother was afraid of me. <laughs> <laughs> a precocious child I don't who's know, quiet. But she, uh, and then sometimes I would challenge my mother. My mother was an alcoholic. And, uh, and so I was always challenging her about being a better mother. <laughs> As you were a child. Yeah, I, you know, that's really funny because my parents always tell me stories and I was super precocious and they think I was an alien because they, and before I could speak, they thought that I could understand them and I would be standing at the crib watching them speak back and forth. So there may have been something to well, it. Let me tell you, I felt like an alien uh, dropped from out of space. And my mother said I would sometimes be in a corner and I would be drawing or doing something like that and I would be holding the paper up. And uh, she felt like that I was as if I was interacting with someone. And so there were reasons to be afraid of me. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah, kids especially when they're quiet and they do weird stuff. It's the most terrifying thing. And there are a lot of scary movies about that. Um, But I'm interested in in that struggle. uh, And because I talk a lot about having a similar struggle. And I don't think I, I went as so far as to make suicide gestures. But that sense of purpose that you're talking about, right? And 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 maybe and and please correct me if I'm wrong, but this period of um, of sadness or depression or whichever well, led to your suicide you gestures, could it have been attributed to the fact that you felt that you weren't living your life as you should have been living? Well, it? let me tell you what I believe now. And um, I had a Christian conversion experience late in my life, between the time I was leaving Princeton and I accepted the job at Vanderbilt. And I was going through a spiritual journey then that took me through New Age, Eastern religions, a whole bunch of places. So I was on my journey when I accepted the position, but then I became a devout believer. And when I go back to my life and look at it through the spiritual lens, I had all this purpose. I had all this destiny. I had all these things. And I always felt like there was something I was supposed to do. I had this sense of urgency, yet I was trapped. Uh, I was trapped in a bad marriage, um, uh, and I think that my life didn't line up with the destiny that God had for me, and that's part of what was going on. But I also believe, and you know, this may weird out some of your secular humanist uh, uh, supporters, but I believe that when there's a call on your life and you have destiny, that there's a struggle, like Joseph Campbell, uh, the hero's journey. I think that there's always struggle, and that makes you who you are, and that you have to overcome all of these things. That's part of life, but I do believe if there's a call on your life, you call for greatness. There are all these forces that are trying to destroy you, Mm -hmm. and you have to overcome all of these demons. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, uh, do you think now that we have, that we live in a climate where people are trying to keep others in a struggle? Like that, there that people see that it's advantageous to keep people in that struggle and not fighting to sort of break away and become what they were destined to become. I guess a, a, a better question would be: Do you think every individual has a destiny? Oh, I do. You do, uh, and I think that um, no or matter calling, what rather. your situation is, that in the end, I just believe that people come into your life. Like I became a devout Christian believer late in my life. But I can tell you along the way that individuals came into my life that encouraged me and pushed me. There's no way I would have gone into academia or become a university professor. I didn't know any professors. Uh, I started college because I wanted 
a better job, and I wanted to be able to support myself without a man's income because I'd been in bad marriage. Um, uh, in fact, I've been married twice, twice in bad marital situations, one very abusive. Um, and I wanted the independence, the financial independence. And so even though I'm very creative and I wanted to do art, and I'd won blue, blue ribbons as um, a student, I was told to be practical. And so I did business. And that was much more difficult because math was harder without the high school background. Uh, and then for the four-year degree, and this is something that, you know, that uh, I don't talk much about, but okay, the four-year degree, I chose uh, criminal justice uh, because it had the least amount of math. But I also, I knew that I was good in anything that was not so quantitative. And I made a decision that I was going to be an honest student. I was working at the Community College Library, Virginia Western, full-time, 40 hours a week, nights and weekends. I checked out books. I purchased books on how to make A's in college, how to take essay exams, how to uh, take objective, to answer objective questions. And I ended up graduating magna cum laude while working 40 hours a week at that Community College Library. And as I was graduating with the criminal justice degree, had had uh, was in the highest honor society and later inducted into Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, I could have ended my education there, but I decided at the time that I was going to work for the government and that I needed a master's degree. And while I was getting the master's degree in college, the professors took an interest in me because I was talented. They encouraged me to get a PhD. I was not interested. I kept applying for jobs. And even though I was an honor student, known all over the city, had started getting media attention, I could not get a job. And this was the era of affirmative action. This was the 1980s when affirmative action, a, an honest student, all of this stuff, and I presented well, I could not get a job. And so the way I would interpret that now is that God had a plan for my life. People steered me towards academia. I was shy. I could not imagine myself teaching. And my image of a teacher is someone that goes to the blackboard, you know, and all this flair, and they write all these things. And I was so shy that I, you know, just the whole idea, I didn't like my handwriting of turning my back to a class where people might be laughing and making fun of me and all of this stuff. It was not my idea of how I wanted to live, but I got steered into academia. My professors um, told me what I needed to do to be successful. I always mentored well. And I always sought the people that were doing what I wanted to do, the ones that were doing it well. And so when they told me what I needed to do to be successful in political science, you need to write articles, you need to have creative ideas, you need to give conference papers, I did everything they told me to do. And by the time I was graduating, um, I was known across the country. I ended up with my own short list, and I got a signing bonus from Princeton and from every school except one. University of Michigan did not make an offer to me, but by the time I interviewed there, I had four or five offers anyway, and they knew I wasn't going to Michigan. There you go. <laughs> and and so your story is one of remarkable hard work. 
uh, and, and kind of getting into the driver's seat of your own life because it could have gone a different way for you, obviously, with the, with the upbringing that you had and typically now, especially in society, these are now, these are excuses. You could have said, I grew up poor. I have parents that didn't have high school degrees. I'm black. Society, you know, I'm coming up in a, in a, in a society as a black woman. And yet you instead were at the library checking out books, working really hard to get where, where you are today. So let me ask you a question. How have things changed? Because you have an interesting story where you got to go through the system and get rewarded based off, off of your hard work. And um, then you got to teach in the school systems. Right. And when did you when did you stop teaching? How many years ago? Uh, just two, two or three, three years ago. So you're you're seeing a, a very, I, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, a Except drastically never, different society. I never stopped teaching. You never stopped teaching. The world is my classroom. That's correct. Have, We're teaching right now. I have millions of pregnant <laughs> students. <Yeah. laughs> the world All is your different teacher. Ages. Yeah, yeah. Is your students The world now. is my classroom. Yeah. But I want to say something else. Um, how I was different. Yeah. When I started my four-year college, which is Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia, uh, there were probably about 20-some blacks, and a lot of them were on the basketball team. But the black students met me, and they were very well-meaning. But they told me who all the racist professors were to avoid. And my personality is such, those are the ones I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the person that was my advisor, he was one of the ones that was supposed to be the racist professor. And he did tell me uh, during the... Um, orientation period, not to expect to do as well in his class at Ronald College as I had done in the past, because Ronald College was a really hard school. And to me, that was like throwing the gauntlet down. And so I ended up uh, getting a B plus in the first class I took with him. And in my mind, I probably made an A minus, but I felt like he was a professor that wasn't going to give an A on the first time. And then every class I took with him after that, I made an A. And so all through my college, I would be met by black students who told me which professors to take and which ones were racist. I always took the ones they said were racist. And they turned out to be conservatives. And uh, because of that, I was exposed to literature and ideas and thoughts that I don't think I would have gotten the same education that if I had followed the other students, I might be a uh, Marxist might right now. Right. Yeah. That's interesting that you say that, right? Because that's very much uh, like Thomas Sowell started as a, as a Marxist, right? Um, and I think that's because a lot of times in these classes, and it's not just, you know, towards black Americans, you can always find some ism and some reason uh, that they tell you that you're less than and you can't. Now it's there's feminism, there's racism, there's, you know, just... Well, right. Well, when I got to graduate school, I tell this story, that was when... Uh, all the mentors I had had before, and a lot of them were white, a lot of them were white men, they were older, but everyone treated me like I could do anything, and I felt like I could do anything. But when I got to graduate school and I took a course, and, you know, it just happens to be t was taught by a white female, uh, was very liberal, I remember her screaming at me one day, you'll never be able to change the fact that you're a black woman. I don't know what I said in that class or what I did that uh, caused her to scream at me like that. But um, the message was that you, you're you black, you're handicapped, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're a black woman. But it was graduate school, and the theories of oppression was when I learned I'm, you're poor, you're black, you you know, you have children, uh, you're female, uh, you're oppressed. And by then, I was already successful. It was too late. But had I gotten those messages as an undergraduate, I'm just not sure if I would have, how I would have dealt with it. 
But then my personality is such that I sought out the professors that were supposed to be against me because I was going to show them. Right. <laughs> and, and there you go. And I think it's interesting that you say that you're not sure had those ideas and lessons came earlier in life, how you would have turned out. Because I think what we're seeing today, I, there is um, there's this remarkable culture of victimhood. Uh, and it's and like I said, it could be because you're a homosexual, because you're a woman, because you're black. Um, everyone is sort of clamoring to be a victim and starting really young. Well, here's something I find very interesting. And if being black is so bad in the society, why are so many white people trying to be black? And when I was teaching as a professor, we knew we talked about ethnic fraud. We knew that there were people that were not racial and ethnic minorities that were checking the affirmative action box passing as minorities. So if it was so bad to be black or so bad to be a minority, why were they uh, trying to pass? You know, back in the slave days and during the Jim Crow days, you had black people that passed if they were light enough into the white world. And now you have all these white people that are trying to pass into the black world. Right. That's interesting. Explain and I say the same me. thing about um, bi- biracial people that have a platform and they choose to talk about being black and not being white. Like Colin Kaepernick's <laughs> a great example, right? So he's he is half white. He was raised by two white parents, actually. He was adopted, fortunately. Um, but rather than say anything positive about white people, he has decided to be black, to grow an afro out, and to pick his hair out. And if being black is ultimately what leads to your oppression. That's not what led to him to have these million dollar deal with Nike, right? So it is, it's a very interesting question. I ask the same thing as if being black is so bad, why are so many people choosing it? <laughs> I also have to tell you this. Um, so I wear my hair natural. And I have this style, but there was a time when I first started doing media that I wore weaves and I wore wigs and I did all this stuff. And I reached a point that was I going to have hair or not? Because all that stuff was harmful, was taking out my hair. Uh, and so I ended up, I mean, as a, I prayed about it, I sat down and I drew what I wanted my hair to look like. And I went to the barbershop instead of a hairstylist where you pay 60 70 100 $300, went to the local black barbershop, and I asked the guy, could he get that look on me? And so we grew this look. Well, I've had black people attack me. How dare you wear your hair in an afro? How dare you, you know, do this? <laughs> what was the purpose of that? Why were they well, attacking they're saying you? that I, I guess they want to say that if you're black conservative, you don't like black people. You uh, don't like your blackness. Right. You're not in touch with your blackness. And so it bothers them that I have a natural hairdo as a black conservative. When did you start getting your blackness question? Because you'd seem to, you'd think story from poverty. I say this all the time. It's like Dr. Condoleezza Rice, you know, story from poverty. Um, you grew up in a two a two room shack. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have plumbing. Is that correct? Just right, like you said right, earlier, right. didn't have plumbing. Uh, nine brothers and sisters couldn't get to school. Didn't was have food. Cold, didn't have time. food. <laughs> had to miss eighty classes. Um, so, at what point in, in in your life did suddenly your blackness start getting questioned? Can you remember the first time? When I was at Princeton and I wrote an award-winning book, my first book, and I was a Democrat at the time. It was titled Black Faces, Black Interests, the Representation of African Americans in Congress. It looked at how well the U.S. Congress represents African Americans, been cited by the Supreme Court. That was when I started being called a sellout. And what was in the contents of the book that you would be called the sellout? 
I don't think it was anything in the content of the book, but there were people that were upset because I didn't belong to the black political scientists and I was never active in black student unions. I was very focused because I had children, very focused on finishing my degrees, doing what I had to do. Uh, And so I think it had to do with the fact that a lot of people didn't all of a sudden there was this black professor at Princeton. Where did she come from? Because I didn't go through their ranks. And so that's, I believe, was part of why I was being attacked. But I argued in that book that was that political party was more important than the race of the representative. And as long as blacks held the views they did, they would best be represented by Democrats. Consequently, it didn't make sense to draw majority black legislative districts because those districts helped elect more Republicans. And uh, the book was published before the Republicans took over the Congress in 1994. And so I issued a warning. uh, And the next year, you know, 1994, uh, after 40 years, the Republicans took over the Congress. That, um, but I was, I made the argument that political party and not race. At the time, people were saying that only black people could represent blacks. And my book talked about the trade-off between black descriptive representation, having someone that looks like you, and black substantive representation, having people who support your ideas. Right. And and that's very interesting that you say (laughs) that because there is this idea that just because you're black and I'm black, that that means all of our ideas must just be the same and I can go out and represent you and you can represent me. Or on the flip side of that, because we're women, right? It just means that all of my interests must automatically align with yours. And the irony of that is that that there is something fundamentally racist about that, right? Because you're, you're just subscribing all of these characteristics and attributes to somebody based on the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, um, or their or, or their sex. But this whole thing, like with, with uh, Joe Biden saying, you ain't black if you don't support me, mm-hmm. and uh, you've been called, what, a black white supremacist? <laughs> I have indeed. But I have to tell you, uh, before that, I was called an apologist for white supremacy mm-hmm. because of a film title, A Conversation About Race, that was produced by a white filmmaker that questioned how uh, racism, the epithet, is used against whites as a weapon. I thought it was a great film because students, we always do the eyes on the prize, and there's a host of films about discrimination, but none that told it from the perspective of a white person. Mm -hmm. And so I highly recommended that film. The Southern Poverty Law Center uh, came after me, and part of that coming after me had to do with the fact that maybe three months before that, I had written for the Huffington Post, then I was writing for them, I had said that they had become a hate group. <laughs> and they have. I was the first to say that, by the way. Right. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> so a So they big... came after me. And so they in my local newspaper, I'm on the front page with my picture. Uh, I'm an apologist for white supremacy. And that was before I had a platform. And so I was harassed. And, and the people talking about me on the radio or wherever they were talking did not invite me to be on. Mm. But James Taranto with the Wall Street Journal wrote an article, 2,000-word article in defense of Carol Swain, and that just sort of shut up everyone for a while. Right. And I get that, too, that you're you're an apologist for white supremacy, <laughs> which is always foolish because why would anybody want to help create a society that they couldn't live in, that they couldn't thrive in? <laughs> um, and, and all of that gets really ridiculous. But 
have you seen now that, or especially now that attacks have increased? I mean, how do you feel in terms of being a voice that speaks out differently from what people are used to hearing from Black people? Well, first of all, I'm so much older than you that I've gone through a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, the I think race relations are probably worse now than they've ever been before. And I, I also believe that even though blacks are living at a time where there are all these opportunities and advantages, we seem to be going backwards. Because when colleges and universities start setting up separate dorms or saying that black students uh, uh, shouldn't be expected to learn standard English, uh, that the standards need to be relaxed, that uh, is very serious. And um, it's uh, that is white supremacy. They're saying that blacks are inferior and it bothers me that black people themselves are demanding lowered standards for themselves. They're actually saying that they're less. Um, that uh, is very, very disturbing. And I've been attacked and called so many names for so long that I really don't care. And when you're uh, my age, when you're 66, you know, you can say you can do anything. And my gray hair, you know, like I can get away with it's probably a lot easier for me than someone young like you. But I am encouraged by what I see in the world because there's an army of young people of all different races and ethnicities that are truly woke. And they are the ones that's going to transform America if it gets transformed. And so I applaud you for your courage uh, being out there and taking the blows uh, because it is difficult. And if you want people to like you and love you, you know, you're in the wrong line of business. I always say that. I'm not looking for friends. (laughs) And there's so many opportunities. I mean, so many temptations for young people, especially those that are people of faith, to compromise their values. And uh, yet, if they stand and don't compromise their values, and I'm talking about whether, regardless of your faith, if you don't compromise your values, there are a lot of other people watching, and you empower them when you stand. Right. That's exactly right. And um, to go back to your earlier point, I, I totally agree that we're seeing this totally strange dynamic now where people are being brainwashed to oppress themselves. It's it, it's a psychological phenomenon. And the thing about white people, it's like we talk about black people. I think we should talk about white people and the shaming that takes place against white children and young people and college students. And um, I would encourage uh, young, you know, white conservatives that on college campuses, when they are singled out and they are attacked and they are demeaned and when they're ashamed, that they should document that and they should file civil rights complaints. I say this all the time. Because the civil rights laws protect whites as well as racial and ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. They have the Equal Protection Clause as well as the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But they need to learn how to document uh, discrimination against themselves. Yeah, I was asked this question. It's so funny you say that. I would say that's the number one question that I get um, from young white students. How can I say anything when every time I speak, I'm called a bigot or a white supremacist? And I and I always say that, especially when that's coming from the administration, you guys have to fight. I mean, you can't just take it sitting down and, and allow this to happen because I certainly would never let that happen. I mean, what sort of how, how does a biracial person float in this in this society that we're creating of where everyone has to be a victim or an oppressor? They can't. Um, and, and so I would hope and encourage people to find their voices, which you did. And I do want to talk about because you did say you used to be a Democrat. 
And when I found you, you had done this incredible video, which has millions and millions and millions of views, and we'll get more millions of views after this <laughs> after this airs. But the inconvenient truth of the Democratic Party. Um, what inspired you to create that video, and what was what was your um, transition from being a Democrat to suddenly you're doing a video exposing truths? I guess you sound really an exposition. It's just the truth, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, 1999 was when I became a devout believer. And that was between the time I had accepted the job at at Vanderbilt and before I actually uh, started my job in 2000. And in between, I went to Yale and got another degree. I had five degrees. And so the fifth degree was in law. And while I was there, I became a devout believer and as I grew in my faith, I became very uncomfortable with the Democratic Party's platform. And and so my discomfort led me to become an independent for a number of years. I did not become a Republican until 2009. And this was after President George W. Bush had appointed me to two positions as an independent. Uh, he appointed me to the National Endowment uh, for the Humanities and the Tennessee Advisory Committee to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. So I had those two political appointments from uh, President Bush, and then the the Civil Rights Commission position, Obama renewed it because he had just come on and they hadn't figured out who I was, and, and so uh, it got renewed uh, for a year. But my values, my principles, my faith were a factor in me leaving the Democratic Party, but it was not easy to become a Republican, because at that time, I believed a lot of what you hear in the news about Republicans being racist. And I can tell you, you know how when a Republican makes a mistake and they uh, say something they shouldn't say, it gets amplified like a hundredfold. And so it seemed to me that every time I turned around, you know, some Republican said something that was reported in the news that caused me to, um, to, to back away. And But I still felt that the Republican Party platform was the closest to my values. And one of the things I tried to get George W. Bush to do was to have a Rose Garden ceremony for a national apology for slavery where uh, the government itself would apologize for something that blacks, whites, and Native Americans, they all participated in it. They all had slaves. Uh, and that it would be like the ceremony of forgiveness. And the way I visualized it was that the government would apologize for having allowed this to continue and that representatives from the various ethnicities would receive the apology. And I never got a response from uh, President Bush, but then later I was told by people in his administration that they seriously considered it, but it didn't happen. And then the Democrats They rushed something through Congress that they called an apology, but it was not the ceremony that I imagined, I envisioned, where there would be forgiveness and we would put this behind ourselves. And with um, with the Republicans, I decided to become a Republican because I didn't just want to stand in the middle as an independent and I throw rocks at both sides. Um... I decided that I wanted to get into a political party and work for change. And for the um, Mighty American Strike Force, I was their coordinator for uh, black Americans, outreach coordinator, and but now it's for college students, so I'm not in the same role. But I spent my whole life avoiding identity politics. 
And my image of myself was, I don't do black stuff. You know, I'm just me. I'm Carol. I'm an individualist. I don't do the black stuff. But um, our society kind of forces you to do it if you want to be heard. And so I've made the decision that I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do the black stuff so that I can reach more people. But the world that I envision is a world where we are all Americans, that, you know, I don't have to be uh, in the black box. And when it comes to my faith, you know, I don't have to be in the Christian box. I don't have to be in this box or that box. I don't like the boxes they put us in. But as far as being able to reach more people and more blacks, uh, I'm willing to um, humble myself and uh, do the identity politics because the world is structured, both political parties, in that way. What do you <laughs> deem as um, mission critical right now? in terms of what's going on in American society? What do you deem as the most important thing for us to tackle as Americans? Well, I think for the two of us and those that are speaking, you know, we're standing in between whites and blacks trying to bring people together. We're sort of being interpreters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The destructive thing that's happening is the messages that young black people are being given about our society. Like, uh, the, the Smithsonian. I don't know if you remember. They had that exhibit where they were saying that if you believed in hard work, punctuality, and, and individual initiative, and standard English, um, planning for the future, all the things that have made us successful. They're saying if you believe in success principles, that's white. Yeah. And it used to be, you know, if you studied hard and you made A's, you were trying to be white. Now, all of a sudden, you had a Smithsonian, you had these institutions, you had these colleges and universities sending out the message that everything that makes for success is whiteness and it's bad. That is so destructive. And the opposite, of course, which is like every everything that, you know, leads to destruction is good somehow. Like, you know, so t- going back to your point about them thug. pushing through Ebonics, <laughs> yeah. is what I think you were hitting right. at. They were trying to push through Ebonics as a course to learn because even speaking proper English is attributes of whiteness and something that should be ignored. Um, and yeah, also on that list of the Smithsonian was punctuality, showing well, up tell on you this. time. I want to get this in on your show. Yeah. I have reached the, con- the conclusion that progressives hate blacks. Yes. And here's why. Progressives, if you go back, you know, at the turn of the century, they were pushing the eugenics. They were pushing the sterilization. They pushed the abortions through Planned uh, Parenthood. They pushed defunding police, knowing that more black people would die because of the crime in their neighborhoods and the victimization rates. They pushed the protests, being out there. At the same time, they're saying, if you're black, you're a person of color, the virus loves you and the virus is going to kill you. They're saying, except when you're protesting, it's okay to be out there. If you really believed the things that they say, they, oh, and then shutting down the schools. When you shut down the public schools and say everyone can learn online, who are you hurting the most? Everything that progressives do hurt people of color more than any other group. And so what bothers me the most is that there's so many black people, Congressional Black Caucus, black leaders that are cooperating with the destruction of their own people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why? I, I get at this all the time. Why? When I see the self-interest, black caucus and self-interest. they self-interest. Okay. They have always, uh, there's always been a disjuncture between what the black rank and file believe and what the leaders, their leaders are elites, regardless of their race. 
they push what benefits them. Mm-hmm. And what we need in America and for the generation of, uh, you know, your generation and the people, you know, behind you even, we need statesmen and stateswomen to run for office, people that don't want to be politicians. They're not trying, you know, to become Maxine Waters or uh, these people that go into Congress dirt poor and then all of a sudden they have $6 million homes. How did that happen? It doesn't happen, you know, based on that congressional salary. So we really do need uh, a new cadre of leaders. And I am a strong believer in America's Judeo-Christian roots. I think that one reason we were successful, we were the envy of the world, is because people uh, had values and principles and it was based in our laws. And now, you know, we can't even tell the difference between a male and a female. And progressives, you see how they use science. When it benefits them, they are into science. But then when it comes to the differences between a male and female and uh, the DNA, then all of a sudden they don't trust science. Right, but they trust science in terms of potentially predicting the doom and gloom of climate (laughs) change in 100 million years from now. And it's going to happen and all this can happen because we can predict the weather somehow years from now, even though we can't predict it at the end of this week. Right, right. right. But you're exactly right. They abandon um, science when it comes to very basic concepts that somebody can observe with their own two eyes, which is really interesting. Um, And then I'll just ask you, why do you think it is removing politics from it? Uh, What is a society, how how do we benefit from a society um, that is perpetually trying to dumb down, not just black students, all students, we're seeing kind of the replacement of hard academics, learning things that you learned in school with these sort of psychological conditioning programs, learning about white privilege and learning about 26 different genders as opposed right. to learning mathematics and science. What is what is the ultimate goal and just why? Well, I mean, the, uh, it's all about the Marxism and the critical race theory. Uh, one of the things that I hope that uh, your uh, viewers will dig deeply into is critical race theory. And I strongly encourage people to read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. And when they challenge uh, the academic institutions that are discriminating against them, they would be following one of those rules. Saul Alinsky says, make your enemy live up to his rule book. His rule book is that student handbook and those things the university says it stands for. Make them live up to what they say. And I would encourage young people, even though academia right now is like a cesspool in a way, uh, there's not a lot of real learning going on. There's plenty of indoctrination, but not critical thinking. To be a critical thinker, you have to be exposed to different ideas, more than one side. There's very little of that taking place. But I believe that conservative youth can go into colleges, universities, and get PhDs and get through. And that means that Some people will be like the two of us. They'll be outspoken. And people will know who you are, and you will either thrive if people like you and you're winsome and that you really are intelligent. You know their arguments as well as your own arguments. You can uh, put it through. You can get through. And there are enough classical liberals, you know, that believe in uh, free speech and the Constitution that, that will support students. But I think there's a place for students that a very, um, that use a little bit of subterfuge, that you don't have to tell everyone what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, and and sometimes, you know, you, and I would say, you know, like sometimes doing the um, interviews for medical school, they will ask uh, students questions, applicants, that's designed to 
eliminate those, you know, that may be pro-life. And I think that they have to use great wisdom and that there's nothing wrong. We don't want to be deceivers. Like Saul Alinsky was into deception, manipulation, um, and infiltration. I think we should be into infiltration. There should be no place uh, that's safe for liberals and that we have to know what they're doing. To be able to infiltrate, you have to get into those places and you have to keep your mouth shut at times and realize that we are in a cultural war. And I will argue that the rules of engagement during war are different from other periods of time. And in the Bible, for people that read the Bible, people used subterfuge when they needed to use it. And um, and so I'm not encouraging people, you know, to lie, but I'm saying you can be strategic. You can get through. And um, I think that we need conservatives everywhere. And we need people that believe in America, believe in its constitution, have values and principles. So I think that is so well said. Um, and we will end on that note. We wrap every episode by allowing you to leave a two-minute face message to the world. Um, just whatever is on your heart and what you hope could fall on the ears of every single person in the world. So are you ready? On your mark, get set world, I give you Dr. Carol Swain. Hello. Welcome to my classroom. The world is my classroom. I'm not at a university, but the world is my classroom. And I'm so excited about participating in the PragerU videos and other efforts and opportunities to educate people. Doesn't matter, you know, whether you're conservative or liberal. Hopefully, you're exposing yourself to ideas, a wide variety of ideas. And that's what a liberal arts education used to mean. And so my uh, hope is that people who listen, you know, to this broadcast, that we've said something that will touch your heart. And if you're one of those weird people like me or Candace that we grew up, we felt like aliens, it's okay to be an alien. Being an alien means that there's something great that you're going to do. No one understands you. They're not supposed to know what you're called to do. So you need to hang in there and, and watch your life unfold. And life is a journey. It took me 40 years to figure out, you know, who I am and what I was meant to do. It took me 40 years to get over my shyness. It doesn't have to take you that long. And so that's my message. Be encouraged. Be yourself. Be strong. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. That was so great. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.